Uh, we're going to be in book, the book of Matthew this morning. And just to let you know beforehand, I've got nine pages of notes, and I'm very sorry about that. Um, I think that we're going to have to get through it all this morning. Is that okay? Um, so Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to start. The whole purpose of this next series, you guys, is the next couple of weeks are going to be a bit of a setup. And as we dig into this series, the goal for us is really to study the life of Jesus and practice what it means to live out his words. And so it's kind of a series like none other for us in the sense that as we get to certain sections of teachings of Jesus, we might bounce out of Matthew for two, three, four weeks at a time to actually study what it is Jesus is saying there. And then in our community groups, having the conversation around what does it look like for us to actually put these things to practice that Jesus is saying. And so if we believe this to be truth, and we believe in Christ, then what does it look like for us to take what we know is truth and actually begin to walk this out in our lives? And so this could be like the next three years of our life. I have no idea how long this is going to last, but um, I'm really looking forward to it. I've actually been anticipating today um, more than I've anticipated a sermon series in a long time. So would you pray with me? Let's get into it. Jesus, we thank you uh, so much, Lord, even despite the clouds and the snow and the rain. <laughs> Jesus, we're thankful that you are on the throne. Um, God, we're thankful that the weather and the circumstances in our life do not dictate our joy and our hope that's found in you. And Jesus, I pray this morning, you take your word, you plant it deep in our hearts. God, I pray for this church, that we would be a church that is 100% spirit-led, that we take what Jesus says, what you tell us to do, that we allow it to get lodged in our hearts and we believe it so deeply and we're so strongly convicted by it that we actually begin to walk this out. And I pray, Jesus, that the city we live in, that our families, our households, our friendships, our school, our workplaces, God, um, that they would begin to look different as a result of these individuals in this room that begin to walk out what it is that Jesus asked us to do. Lord, bless this time in your name. Amen. Matthew chapter 1. Any, any of you guys uh, love it when a pastor reads a section and he can't actually pronounce any words? So this morning I'm going to try my best to get through the genealogy of Jesus. And we'll dig in here. So Matthew chapter 1. Why don't you guys say word when you get there? Okay, Matthew chapter 1. Starting at verse 1. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Anybody having fun yet? And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, 
And Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Amen. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Ah, thank you, thank you. We made it through. Have a great Sunday, we'll see you guys next week. How many of you guys zoned out at some point during that reading? Be honest with me this morning. How many of you, when you get to a section of scripture like this, when you're reading the Bible, either skim by it or skip it altogether? Any honest folks in this room? And you call yourselves Christians. You say you're all in. The least you guys could do is uh, find some good ideas for baby names in there, right? Like Aminadab and Hezron and Shealtiel, um, guaranteed to make your kids hate you forever. Most of us in this room aren't necessarily into genealogies, and especially not somebody else's genealogy. But the truth be told, um, I'm not really into genealogies myself, but some of you guys are. Um, some people go to websites and pay, they pay money to actually see where they came from. Anybody done that in this room? Um, I feel like I have enough relatives already, and so I don't need to look for new ones. Um, some of us are afraid of what we might find, but it seems like maybe the older you get, the more you actually care about your ancestry, where you came from, who the people were, how that's actually shaped who you are today. And one thing that I do realize is that when you learn the stories of your ancestors, you actually learn a lot about yourself, don't you? You, you learn why you are the way you are and how you tick, um, because our stories actually go way back into the past. Um, what, what our parents were like, what our parents' parents were like. And it's important to know the backstory of a person. I, I think with the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew's saying, look, you, you have these, these ancient ancestors, and, and I've tracked them down for you, and, and the Jews were amazing at keeping record of these things. I mean, imagine this. Matthew isn't reading this and writing it. Matthew's saying this from memory, Anybody else have this memorized that could come up here and just quote this off for us this morning? Taylor? Dude, you are impressive. Uh, man, not only do you sport awesome sports gear, but uh, great memory as well. Um, but Matthew's quoting this like from memory. And I think that Matthew was saying, uh, I've told you these things so that you would know more about who this Jesus is that he's telling us about for the next 28 chapters as we walk in through the Gospel of Matthew. A couple of really important things to notice before we begin. Uh, Matthew calls him the son of Abraham at the very beginning there. Um, he, he calls him the son of David, and this is how Matthew starts this writing out. So right off the bat, he tells us that this Jesus that he's going to spend 28 chapters writing on was the son of these two massive heroes in the Old Testament, if you know about the Old Testament, you know Abraham is the one that God said, I'm going to bring forth a child from Abraham that's actually going to bless the nations. He's going to bless the world. He's going to be this global savior. He's going to bless the generations to come through him. And he doesn't tell us 
necessarily how that's going to happen back in Genesis 12, but there's this promise that it will, that there will be this blessing that will come forth from Abraham. And then in 2 Samuel 7, he tells David, who's one of the ancestors of Abraham, one of your children is going to reign on a throne eternally. And so Abraham didn't know that. He didn't know how the blessing would come to pass, how it would come. But then uh, when, when he comes to David, now, now we know the, this worldwide blessing, the, this blessing of the nations and the generations is going to come through this king. The, there's going to be this king like David, but greater than David, who's going to come and he's going to usher in this different age, this new kingdom. And that's what Matthew calls um, at the beginning here, this is this new Genesis, as he refers to it. This isn't um, in the English translation, but in the Greek, that opening line literally says the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ in that first line. And so genealogy, if you look at that word, can actually be Genesis or the origin of something. And so some scholars would think that, that Matthew, what Matthew's saying here is that Jesus is bringing this new kind of Genesis, the, this new origin, that he, he's creating a new way um, this, the, in, the, in the way that God created the, the heavens and the earth, and he said what? He said, let there be light. Then in the same way, like he's almost creating it this, uh, the second creation of sorts when he says, let there be the word, let, let there be this like incarnation, let there be this child in the womb of Mary, that he's starting something new. And, and this is huge for you and I as believers. Like, Jesus is ushering in a new kingdom. He's ushering in a new way to live. Uh, in verse 1, again, it literally says the, the, the biography of this new Genesis affected by Jesus, the Messiah. And so what Matthew is saying is that when Jesus came, this completely new thing began to happen in the world. And so John writes this. John says in chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. He says, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then in verse 14 in John 1, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is that new thing that God was doing. And it tells us so much about this new sort of Genesis. I, I heard this awesome analogy um, a couple weeks ago. Who in this room has seen Romeo and Juliet, Juliet? Or you've read the book, you've seen the play, something, at least half of you, or maybe a third of you. Imagine that you're, Watching the play right before, um, right before Romeo kills himself, spoiler alert for those that have not seen the play or the movie, um, but what if right before Romeo kills himself, William Shakespeare walks out onto the stage and tells Romeo, don't do it. Like, she's not really dead, I wrote the play. It would be crazy. It would be a whole new story, like a whole new beginning. You would actually have the playwright of the story um, entering into the play, doing things and telling people to do things. In a lot of ways, um, this is exactly what it's like for the Christian. It's the same thing. Uh, around the year 3 BC, this very thing happened for you and I. The author of the whole story actually came into real life. He came into real history. And that's really difficult for us as humans to comprehend. But God actually became a person in real history. And so this isn't like some once upon a time story, um, like a fairy tale begins. It's not this uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's not some fictitious story. This is real history. Jesus came and he walked this earth. And Matthew 
even in, the, in this passage that we're reading from, mentions several figures that we actually can trace back in non-biblical sources. So, for instance, in verse 9, he refers to a name Ahaz, who actually reigned in 732 B.C. He's actually mentioned in, in, in an Assyrian inscription in the palace of Tiglath-Pileser III. And so this isn't something you have to be a Christian to necessarily even believe in. This is actually a secular source. Um, Verse 10, there's a mention of Hezekiah, which in 715 BC, he's mentioned um, in in some writings, and he's also found in some other inscriptions. And multiple names that are listed on this list are mentioned in non-biblical historical writings and inscriptions. It's real stuff. It's history. It actually happened. And it may not be that important to some of you in this room, but it's actually significant for many of us, right? That this actually took place, that this isn't fictitious, that it's not some fable that we're reading. And some of you in this room are asking, what does this have to do with my life? We're talking about thousands of years ago, so why is it important? Why is Matthew 1 important? Why is the history important? And I was thinking this week uh, about the infamous War of the Worlds that was written in the 30s. And many of you have heard this story, but on Halloween night in 1938, CBS radio broadcasted this dramatization of H.G. Wells' book, uh, his famous novel, The War of the Worlds. And uh, there were a bunch of people that tuned in that never actually heard the introduction to the dramatization being quoted over the airwaves. And so when they introed the radio show, they, they had said this was a dramatization of the book, The War of the Worlds. But for people that tuned into the radio show a little bit too late, which was many, they actually never heard the introduction to the radio broadcast. And so when they introed uh, the radio show by saying this was a dramatization of the book, the book of The War of the Worlds, they never knew that this was actually a book. And so it was so realistic that when people began tuning into this radio broadcast, when they tuned in late, and they were listening to what was being said, they were panicking because reporters were talking about an unusual object that fell on a farm in New Jersey, and they heard about these Martians that were emerging from this cylindrical object, and they heard that one of the people looking at this cylindrical object was killed by a heat ray that came out of this object, and then they heard these rapid-fire updates that, that this was happening in cities all over the world, and people were freaking out, like, what's going on? Martians are invading, like, all this crazy stuff is happening. You can imagine what's taking place. That if you were hearing this and you thought that it was real, you would have panicked. And so it actually does matter if something is real or not. If an invasion is actually happening and you heard the reports, you'd be freaking out. Who wouldn't freak out a little bit if you turned the radio show on late and you began to hear that stuff? So to challenge you, if you casually kind of enjoy Jesus and you enjoy church, and you look at it as a social club or just something that's good for you or something that's just good for your family, I would actually say that you're not really getting it. You're kind of like the person that's sitting on the couch that night in 1938, casually enjoying the war of the worlds. But if you really understand what's going on here, it really happened. It's truth. It's it's bigger than an alien invasion. It's the author of the story actually coming in and changing the whole plot of the story forever. And so you might think it's kind of odd for Matthew to start off his gospel 
with what feels like this snoozer where we just go, oh, good Lord, you know, I'm just going to skip to the end of chapter one there and get right to the good stuff. But there's a reason that Matthew does this. In, in this genealogy, he gives us everything you need to know about Christianity. All the essentials are actually in this. And so as I've studied this over the last few weeks, I've learned a ton like by diving into commentaries and listening to what some other pastors have to say. And I've realized that the, the, the amount of things that Matthew's trying to teach you through this list of names is absolutely remarkable. Like we don't have time to go through it all today. But this morning, there are five uh, different things that I think we can learn from this text that I want to break down. Um, and the first one I, I stole from Tim Keller. But Tim Keller said this, the gospel's not good advice, it's good news. So first thing, the gospel's not good advice, it's actually good news. As I had said before, most stories or fairy tales start out with this idea of like once upon a time. But Matthew doesn't start out that way. He actually starts out with this genealogy, which is this way of saying, I'm going to tell you about what actually happened in time and space. Something true. And Christianity's most important feature for us is that it's actual history. Because at the core of Christianity is not this set of principles that Jesus taught us, but something that actually Jesus was going to do for us which we're going to get to in the weeks to come. Um, it's interesting when you study most religions because when you peel back the layer of these religions, you actually see that they're built on teachings and principles that really would be true whether or not the religious founder, whoever that is of the religion, ever lived or not. And, and so the, the religious founder of, the, uh, of whatever religion is was just the mouthpiece for these teachings it's like that with Buddhism, it's like that with Islam, but it's not true for Christianity. Christianity actually depended on this set of events that actually took place. That Jesus didn't just speak it, Jesus actually lived it out. He walked this earth. Jesus actually lived and died and rose again. Like these things actually happened. Um, some scholars actually point out that the Gospels, the, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John um, that record Jesus' life, uh, a lot of scholars will say that these are just like prologues to the death of Christ, that they're sort of these intros to Jesus' death, and, and that the central element in each gospel really is the death of Jesus. And so that they skim over 33 years of his life and three years of his teaching, and they focus on one week in which he would actually go to a cross, and he would bear the penalty for our sins and die in our place, and he would rise again. That's like central to the story for us. And the Gospels contain a lot of things that Jesus taught, but the focus of the Gospels is not on what Jesus taught, but it's actually on what Jesus did, what he modeled which is the whole purpose of us digging into the book of Matthew for the coming months or years or however long it takes is not just for us to hear the great words of Jesus because honestly, those of us who grew up in church have heard the great words of Jesus for years. Those of us who grew up in church can probably quote the red letters in the gospel books. But many of us in this room are guilty of actually walking those things out and doing what it is he said to do. And so that will be our challenge over the months to come, to not just read them, not just quote them. We do want to do that, but we actually want them to be so true to us, to believe them enough, to be convicted enough by them that we actually will walk them out as Jesus challenged us to do. 
And so that's why I say this gospel is not primarily good advice, but it's good news. And so when we talk about this word gospel, um, it means the announcement of good news. And so in the Greek, it's this word euangelion. It's actually two words, eu-angelion. And so it's this combination of these two words, meaning good and meaning message. And so that phrase good news would be like somebody coming to you today and telling you that they're giving you $10 million tomorrow. And you'd be like, whatever, that's way too good to be true, wouldn't you? And then they actually do it. And so good news is news that's too good to be true. It's absolutely insane. Like there's no way. And then it actually was followed through with. And he actually did do what he told us he would do for us. And that's how strong the gospel word was. That that we needed a a different kind of salvation, a different kind, a new savior. And, And God became that for us by entering into history and doing for us what we actually could not do for ourselves. Amen? This is what Jesus did. The most important thing about the gospel is that it actually must be believed and received like a gift, right? It's a free gift that's been given to you, which means you're not a Christian if you just try to emulate these these moral, like, good teachings of Jesus, even if you keep them really well and, and better than most people do. That doesn't make you a good Christian because the core of Christianity is not just a set of teachings to be followed, but it's actually a gift that we receive by God's grace through his son, Jesus, and a gift so great that it actually moves us to walk it out. We're so grateful for it. We believe it so strongly that we will actually enact what it is he's put within us in this world that he's placed us in. The second thing that this genealogy, I think, shows us is that Jesus is the center of history. And so Matthew takes uh, what the world have co- would have considered to be this insignificant and even dysfunctional family. If you go through and retrace all of these names in there, he, Matthew takes this, this dysfunctional family line and he organizes all of human history around a really dysfunctional group of people. And here's why this is important, because at, the, at this point, it, it certainly didn't seem like Jesus was the focal point of history when he comes to earth. It certainly didn't seem like he was the focus. Like, you look at Israel. Anybody ever been to Israel? How small of a country is Israel? It's tiny. And you take Israel at this time, it was kind of this backwater, Middle Eastern country that was under the rule of somebody else, and nobody in Rome was even paying attention to this family line. But God had made a promise, like we said, to Abraham to bring salvation to the world through Jesus, to bring the whole world into subjection to Christ. And so at this point in world history, you've got these really powerful nations, and you have people that seem like they're directing things. But what Matthew shows you in the genealogy of Jesus is that God is actually the one guiding it all according to his plans through a Messiah that the powers of the world are actually an illusion. Think about that. That ultimately, Jesus is the one making it all happen. He's bringing it all into into fruition. So I was thinking um, the other day uh, about CNN. Uh, Some of you are more Fox News people. That's fine. Uh, I was just thinking about CNN, though, and I was thinking it it doesn't look now, like in, in our current culture, like Jesus is the center of history, does it? Does anybody think like that's the picture that's portrayed to us through the news. It doesn't look like Jesus is the center of history. 
Like CNN is not in here this morning with their cameras paying attention to what we do and caring much about what's going on and what's being said here this morning. CNN is watching what they think are the most important powers that have put in pl- been put in place in the world. And so CNN is watching the market. CNN is watching the White House. CNN is watching world politics. But these things are like an insignificant drop in the bucket because the center of history is actually what God is actually doing in and through the kingdom of Jesus. That's the center of it all. That he's accomplishing his purpose to take salvation to every nation on the earth, to every person, to bring the world into his subjection. And he moves around the most powerful nations. Think about this. He shifts everything in history, everything in time to accomplish his will. Isn't that crazy? And everybody thinks they have power. But God is the one orchestrating it all. And and so there's this sort of unseen story behind the actual story. And so many of the Israelites at this time, as as, um, Jesus enters the scene, were discouraged, thinking there was no hope. When was this Messiah going to come? They they looked around. They didn't see how God was fulfilling his purposes because actually Rome was in charge. And so many of you today, you you look around and you're discouraged. You you see unbelief. You see the rise of even like secularism in our culture. You think it's taking over. You see all this corruption. You think our our culture, our our nation is, or um, that our culture, uh, that our culture is corrupted and that it's destroying our nation. But I want to remind us this morning that we should not be deceived because it didn't look back then like God was actually accomplishing his purposes. It actually was a setback for like a setup. you know what I mean? Jesus knew what he was doing when he was doing it. Um, did any of you guys watch the show Alias back in the day? Anybody? Are you guys still with me this morning? Okay. You remember the show Alias? If you were born in 2005, you don't know that show. Um, Alias in the early 2000s, I remember when it first hit the the, the TV station, like Heather and I would watch it every week. We had this group of people that gathered together and watched the show, and we loved the show. Um, but if you watch that show, uh, this, this woman, Sydney Bristow, got into more situations in her life where you were convinced she was going to die, and she never did. Eventually, you get frustrated with the show because you're like, this is so ridiculous. Like, every single time, she's on the verge of death, and you know that she's, like, the star of the show, and they're going to have to pull her out of it. But you think she's going to die, and she doesn't. And and eventually, like, I couldn't watch the show anymore because it was so far-fetched. But Jesus' face, think about this, is actually on the cover of both sides of this book. Beginning to end. Jesus' face is all over it. And the same thing is actually true in our lives. You may be discouraged because it may look like you're the subject to forces in your life that you cannot control. And that everything else is taking over and has power. But the reminder this morning is that God has an amazing purpose in your life. And he started that purpose from the beginning of time. His purpose was to reveal Jesus to you. His purpose was to glorify himself through you. And everything in your life has ultimately been about that, whether you know it or not. The third thing 
that God is working in all things, good and bad, for his purposes. If you look in verse 17, um, it's really interesting. It says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And you see how Matthew sort of organizes this into this progression from Abraham to David and from David to exile, from exile to Jesus in these three different sets of 14. Um, if you study biblical numbers at all, anybody like number, I don't, don't want to call you freaks, but like anybody like studying biblical numbers, like I'm not that person necessarily, but there's, significant in num- uh, there's significance in numbers in the Bible. And so this number 14 is actually two sevens. And we're going to get into this in a little bit, but seven is this biblical number, number of completion or perfection. And so Matthew actually chooses to organize this whole genealogy in these three sections of 14. And what is his purpose for that? To actually show that God has sort of superimposed his seal of perfection on history. Which is really amazing when you consider some of the messed up, random, and chaotic stuff that existed in the lives of the people that are mentioned in this chapter. Uh, For instance, verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. We'll stop there. First of all, it's interesting that he includes this female's name. That he includes um, the mother's name, Tamar. Like, they would, in Jewish culture, they would have never included women's names in genealogies. And so he put that in there to actually call to mind the story that's behind this. Uh, I'll go back to Genesis 38. If you have young kids in the room, I'm really sorry about what's about to be said. Uh, but you go back to Genesis 38, and I want to give you a little recap, some little backstory behind Tamar. Tamar was the wife of one of Judah's sons. But her husband died before they could have kids. And so in those days, if a guy died and left his wife without kids, it was actually the obligation of the deceased brother to marry her and give her children. And so the the brother was named Onan, and he begrudgingly takes her as his wife. Evidently, he didn't like her that much. Um, But he doesn't want to have any kids with her because, you know, kids are super expensive. And um, he didn't even like Tamar. And so whenever they came together, Onan would make sure that he didn't quite seal the deal. Um, In the King James Version, to put it delicately, and kids can plug their ears, but it says this. It says, he spilled it on the ground so that he wouldn't give seed to his brother. So God wasn't pleased with this, so he kills Onan. And so Judah is... Uh, now Judah is two sons down, and he only has three. And so legally speaking, Tamar was supposed to be given to Judah's third son, Shelah. But at this point, Judah starts feeling like Tamar must be cursed, and he doesn't want to lose his last son, so he stalls for years. And so Tamar then figures out that Judah's never going to let her marry the third son, so she devises the plan, and it turns out that Judah, her father-in-law, has this weakness for prostitutes. And so she dresses up like a prostitute and she seduces him and gets pregnant with Perez and Zerah. Three months later, after uh, she gets pregnant, Judah, who has no idea it's his babies, orders that she be stoned because obviously she's been sleeping around. And so they drag her out 
And she says, I have here the belt of the man whose babies these are. And it's Judah's belt. And so now he's in this really awkward situation. So I wonder what it was like around the Thanksgiving table with the family that year, right? Quite an awkward discussion. Anybody feeling better about their families this morning? (laughs) Pretty gnarly stuff. This is messy. It's chaotic. Yet in all of this, God is working. He's bringing about a perfect plan. And that's why this number 14 is used. He's working in your life too. Even when he seems absent, he's actually working. Some of you have this, some really messy dysfunction in your life. And I'm not saying that God was pleased with the plan that has come into your life because you did all the right things or the wrong things. He was brokenhearted. But some of the things that others did to you actually angered the Lord, just like it would anger me for someone to hurt one of my children. But God has this one overriding purpose in your life, to accomplish Jesus' purposes in and through you. Fourth thing, that the gospel's for the outsider. And so for a Jewish person, um, their genealogy was a bit like a, imagine it like a resume. So your heritage was actually how you showed the world your worth, like show me where you came from. And so back then, uh, like today, Resumes were actually kind of fudged to include the best part and omit the nasty details. And so this genealogy, again, was like this resume. And so kings like Herod would only list people in the resume that the genealogy would actually point to, like, their worth, that would establish their worth. And yet, look who Jesus included in his genealogy. Look who he chose. The king overall chose this to include in his Genealogy, Tamar, verse 5, Rahab, she was a prostitute and a Gentile that God saved from Jericho. Ruth, she was a Moabite. And then you see all these women that he includes in there. Like women were not even considered important in those days. And he includes these women in his genealogy. And, And by the way, like these aren't even necessarily respectable women. Like every woman listed here was involved in some sort of sexual scandal. It's just messy. Jesus' line is filled with like these moral outsiders, these people that were far off. It was people that nobody else would have wanted. They they were ethnic outsiders. They were gender outsiders. Like Jesus' lineage is full of this. And it's this message to you and I that that these names are included in this lineage that leads to Christ so that you can know that your name can be included in the line that actually leads from Jesus. Amen? Through Jesus. Jesus saves the farthest off of the far. This is the plot. So it means that no matter who you are or what you've done, there's actually room in his family for you and I. That's really good news if you ask me. Some of you in this room may feel like an outcast, and you're not because he's brought you close. Some of you in this room feel worthless He's actually purchased you with the universe's most valuable possession, his blood. He's bought you. Some of you think that God's plans for your life are completely over. And when I read through this genealogy, I'm reminded that they've actually just begun. God was at work in the ugliest of situations, bringing forth like his most prized possession, his beautiful son. 
And number five, I'll end on this, is that Jesus is the ultimate rest. And this to me is like the coolest part of this whole section. You have these three sets of 14. Um, I know some of you, it's been a while since you've been in math class. Can everybody add and subtract? Maybe a little multiplication this morning. But three 14s is actually six sevens, which actually makes Jesus the seventh seven. And so, uh, again, seven is this amazing, significant number in the Bible. It's this biblical number of completion. It actually points to rest, because what did God do on the seventh day? He rested. And so every seven years in Jewish culture, the land in Israel was supposed to rest. And so, as it was said, the, the, the land was to be, lie unsown so it could replenish its nutrients. And so in Leviticus 25, it talks about this seventh seven year that they would call the Jubilee, in which like all debts were forgiven in Israel, all slaves were set free. This was like an amazing thing when you come in to the seventh seven, the year of Jubilee, the 50th year, your debts are forgiven, the slaves are set free. It's like reset is being hit in your culture. And when Matthew shows us that Jesus is this seventh seven, he's saying Jesus is actually the year of Jubilee. He's the reset. He's a new start. In him, all our debts are forgiven. All slaves are freed. Amen? That he is the ultimate rest. Like Jesus says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And he says, I will give you rest. You don't have to earn God's love. It's given to you as a gift that was purchased by him. You can quit striving. You can quit worrying in your life. You can rest in his gift. You don't have to prove yourself. Like in Jesus, you have this absolute approval of the, the only one whose opinion actually matters. You don't have to bear the weight of the world on your shoulders. He came to you as a shepherd and as a friend, as your protector, as your provider. You can rest in him. He says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Isn't this what some of you in this room need the most right now? Is there anybody in this room that does not need rest, like real rest? Is there anybody in this room that does not need a reset in their life, right? I don't know anybody. Like, I'm reading through this this week thinking to myself, like, Jesus, I desperately need this in my own life. Like, where have I stopped trusting you and, and believing that you are my source of rest because I get so caught up in all the world's shenanigans and all my life's circumstances that I lose focus of his purpose? which was to come and provide total rest for us, that we can come to him, all those who are heavy laden, and he will give us rest. People can go super crazy with all the numbers, games, in scripture. Like, a, you know, I've had people sit down with me and be like, did you know that if you add three from here and then you add seven from here and then you add, you know, this 12 and then come back to this seven and then like you get this and then that leads to this passage here. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I don't have time for all of that. But I think it's super clear in this passage that these three 14s, that there's something significant that Matthew's trying to communicate to us through the statement that Jesus is the seventh seven, that Jesus is the ultimate rest. I want the worship team to come up. And I want to leave you guys with this. I mean, we're, we're going to sing a worship song here, but 
I want you to ponder this. In this whole genealogy, there's all these like essential things that you have to know about Christianity. But Jesus comes to us as a gift. He comes to you and he does something for you that you could not do for yourself. That he wins a battle against your sin and he pays your debt for your sin in full. Through his life, through his blood shed for you, his body broken for you. And he brings new life to you through his resurrection as his spirit dwells within you, church. And my question this morning for you is really this. Have you received him? If Jesus is this central point of history and your life, have you actually come to know him? And that's not a rhetorical question. Like, have you actually come to know? Why are we doing what we're doing if he is not the centerpiece in it all? And that's what God, I think, has been saying to all of you that are going through pain right now in your life. That he's trying to get you to see that life's fragile, right? That there's no joy on earth that can sustain you or fulfill you. There's nothing that this earth, that this world has to offer that can sustain you because you were actually created for something more. That there, there's a love and a joy from outside of this world that has invaded this earth through Jesus that's trying to press into your life if you will receive it. And his name is Jesus, amen? And in the coming weeks, we're gonna actually talk about what it means that his kingdom has come to earth. That his will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. That he's the center of history. And, and when it's all said and done and, and all the, the, the little actors that have taken their seat and there's only... Um, one on the center stage receiving the applause, and it's Jesus. It's all for him. It's all by him. It's all with him. And this morning, the author of it all that stepped into the story is actually offering you rest, which I think some of you really need right now, this seventh seven, which is him. He's offering you rest for the weary soul in Jesus. And so my question again, for you this morning, have you received him? John 1.12 says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Amen? Would you guys stand with me? I have no idea where you guys are at this morning and I don't really want to know. <laughs> but I do know that there are some fragmented lives in this room. There are some broken hearts. There's some serious pain and hurt. There's some busyness and some striving. There's some worry and stress. There's tension in relationships, even amongst husbands and wives. There's a whole slew of chaotic, messy stuff going on. Some of you came from the worst lineage possible and you live in fear of becoming what you saw in your family, thinking that that's gonna be carried out through you. And the reminder this morning is that if Jesus is the seventh seven, that it's all reset and it's made whole and new. And it's only made whole in him. 
so when I invite you to experience rest this morning, it's not like, I just don't want to feel anxious anymore. It's, do you know eternally that you are secure, known by, walking with, trusting in, believing in Jesus? And before we even get into the series, man, if Jesus is not the foundation that we're laying as we walk through this, then we are going to raise up a bunch of legalistic, pharisaical people that are about to just do the things of Jesus without actually coming before him and knowing him first. Let us not do that. Let's start with him. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I thank you for your church. I thank you for each individual in this room. Jesus, you did what we could not do for ourselves. You paid a price that we could not pay on our own. And uh, Jesus, I have no doubt that there are some messes in this room. And I'm thankful this morning, Jesus, that you are the only one that can break the curse. I'm thankful, Jesus, that you are the only one that can provide the rest for the weary soul. And I pray your hand be upon each individual in this room. I pray your hand be upon the marriages in this room, the friendships in this room. I pray your hand be upon each individual as they leave here. Jesus, may we carry the rest of the Most High God with us because that's what the world needs. It needs your love and your grace and the rest that only you can provide. We thank you, Most High God, for being the seventh seven for us, Jesus. And I pray as we go into the weeks ahead that you just use this whole, um, this whole series, Lord, your word to bring about something new in our city through your people because I think that our culture is just sick of Christians that listen and talk about things and don't actually do what it is you asked us to do. And so I pray, Jesus, this morning we start with you. We go to you and we ask from here, Jesus, that you fan the flame, that we could be the city on a hill that can't be hidden and that our city would look different as a result of the most high God residing within us by your spirit. In your name we pray.